Welcome to Transcending Comics, a podcast dedicated to trans representation in comic books, manga, and webtoons, both on panel and behind the scenes. Our guest today is Rhea Ewing, a comic illustrator and science communication artist who released their debut graphic novel last year, Fine, a comic about gender, a GLAAD Media Award-nominated book which the Washington Post listed as one of the 10 best graphic novels of 2022. They're also the illustrator behind the beautiful and educational coloring books, Love Letters and Seven Strengths, which explore diversity in nature and how it reflects human experiences. With no further ado, I'd like to welcome to the show, Rhea Ewing. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Glad to have you here. Just hopping right into it here, talking about Fine, a comic about gender. For our listeners who haven't yet heard about the book, how would you describe it in your own words, as well as uh, your intentions going into the project? So Fine is a nonfiction graphic novel uh, based off of 56 interviews with people all over the United States about gender and how it impacts our lives and how we navigate it. I started the project in 2011. Uh, with the kind of simple, straightforward mission to understand gender and figure myself out. And then just, you know, I figured I would get maybe 30 pages of comic material and then I would know who I was. I would just really like put a bow on this whole gender thing and move on. And uh, uh, the very naive place to approach approach the project from. But as I as I learned more and more, I realized I needed to talk to more and more people, and the project expanded out to a full graphic novel. Um, the graphic novel also includes my own story of coming out as trans and kind of coming to terms with who I am, my body, and also with finding my place in the queer community. I noticed reading the book that it felt really one of a kind among gender-related comics that I've read so far for the podcast, uh, specifically with the way it balances personal narrative storytelling with also informing viewers on a subject that doesn't really have any universal answers or definitions for the many questions raised around it. With it being kind of one of a kind, when this project evolved from the original vision of like a 20 to 30 page zine to a full graphic novel, what comics were you like drawing inspiration from to find a style to kind of encapsulate all these big questions? Yeah, I I mean, I'm, I'm looking over at my bookshelf now. Um, I've was drawing a lot of inspiration from like science comics, uh, specifically like there's, I mean, there's the whole, oh, I forget which publisher does the science comics. That's in my other bookshelf. I have more than one bookshelf of graphic novels and comics. And that one's in the other room. But I was reading biographies such as Feynman. Of course, Alison Bechtel's work influenced mine. I was also influenced by biographies like Craig Thompson's Blankets. Um, that mm. book was actually one of the, it was, I remember distinctly the first time I read it and it was, it was before I decided that I wanted to pursue being an artist and it really like was impactful for me of like, oh, like this is some, this is what you can do with this medium. Now, as I was shifting my vision for fine from this 30 page zine to a full graphic novel, I was really, really hesitant to include any of my own story in there, even though I loved autobiographical comics and I loved autobiographical queer comics. Oh, uh, Lillian Bydyke is another is another one that I had been reading for a really long time that influenced my work in a lot of ways. But what I was imagining when I was imagining fine as a graphic novel was less a autobiographical tale and something more, almost more like a documentary because um, I've always loved watching like nature documentaries or documentaries about different like human top human social topics and so I watched 
whatever documentaries I could get my hand on and just like kind of absorbed, uh, absorbed like the, the editing style of when they would cut from one interview to another. I liked it when things were edited in a way to create kind of a conversation. I knew I wanted to do that. And it wasn't until I connected with my agent, Anjali Singh, and uh, later on my editor at my editors at Norton, Live Right Norton. Live Right is a, um, an imprint of Norton Press. So it wasn't until I connected with my literary agent, Anjali Singh, and with my editors at Live Right Norton, Gina and Marie, and the three of them, they all really, really pushed me to include my own story in the graphic novel which is something that I had been very hesitant to do. I've always been very aware of and afraid of taking up too much space in trans and queer spaces. You know, I touched on this a little bit in my book, but from when I was a teenager, like kind of first questioning myself, like I got the sense of like, maybe I didn't count. Maybe I wasn't enough in in whatever ways. And when you look for particularly non-binary representation, like, it's easier to find people who look like me, who are white, who are assigned female at birth, who are able-bodied, who are relatively neurotypical, like all of those things. It's like, it's easier to find representation. And it's certainly at the time, like I felt like there was a, a pretty big imbalance in terms of who, who whose voices we were already hearing. So I, I really didn't want to take up any more space than I absolutely needed to. And the argument that Anjali and Tina and Marie all gave back to me, and there were several. One is that the book needed a narrative through line, something to tie all of these different voices together. Two, it was kind of interesting that like, you know, most people don't dedicate a decade of their life to interviewing people and compiling, you know, things about gender. So kind of knowing more about the person behind it would be interesting to the reader. And three, and this is what really convinced me, is that regardless of how upfront I was about my own experiences and kind of the lens that I was viewing these things, these stories through, that would be present in the book regardless. So by putting my own story in and being really upfront, you know, this is this is who I am. This is kind of my journey through while I was working on this project, and hopefully inviting the the reader to think, you know reflect on how if I had been someone else or been in a different time or place, maybe the questions I would have thought to ask would have been really different. Um, maybe the things that I would have focused on or like editing choices that I would make would have been different. And, you know, that that kind of conversation and awareness is something that I really hope readers cue into and and take me up on that invitation to reflect on like, okay, well, then like, what is what is maybe missing here? Like, what what other things? And I hope that that comes in like an exciting way. Like, sometimes I think people, when discussing representation in media, it can kind of feel like, oh, well, this didn't have everything. So it failed. But you know, maybe what it means instead is like, oh, hey, like, this conversation is still ongoing. That's cool. Like, there's there's more to touch base on and more to explore. So that's the, it was a pretty long road to get the book to the structure that it, uh, that it eventually ended on. On that note of your own personal story being included in the book, I noticed that the section where you mentioned your coming out as genderqueer uh, is fairly brief and only lightly touched on. And you've kind of answered that, like, it wasn't the intention going in to make that a big focus. But I was still surprised that, like, there wasn't a more dedicated section to that. You do mention the uh, the almost non-issue of it with like coming out to your family and a lot of your friends. 
was that a big factor in like the amount of space your own story took up or was it more a matter of just wanting to keep that focus on everyone you were interviewing and the conversation itself? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a combination of the two. My own coming out was very sort of a time release of like I started with my with my family and then like expanded it out to some friends. And then for a while, like I think in the book, there's even like a, a map that I drew of like places that I was out and where I was using which pronouns, which I'm I'm still I'm still very fond of that of that image because that the geography of gender is something that I that I reflect on a lot even now. But, you know, in terms of interesting things to say, like there wasn't there weren't really there wasn't really a story there. I felt like there wasn't anything that stood out to me as like something that would be contributing something as meaningful as what all of the wonderful people who shared their time and their stories with me could contribute. So, yeah, I did. I did try to try to keep it a pretty light touch and let people kind of take that for what it is, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I had to ask, since you mentioned Blankets as one of the inspirations for this, I just discovered Blankets by Craig Thompson in the last year, and I hadn't read many biographical comics before, but this one really blew me away as one of my new favorites. And I know you're also local to the Midwest originally, or a lot of your interviews were from here. Did you see a lot of yourself in Craig Thompson's experience or was that just me personally having the same like country Midwest church camp attending experience oh, as Craig? The country Midwest. Yeah. So um, a little bit about my like my growing up here would be helpful. So I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico to uh, parents who met at the universe, Unitarian Universalist Church. And uh, then when I was five, my parents decided to move to a small town in Kentucky uh, so that my dad could do a medical residency there. And the plan had been at that time to do the medical residency at this little town and then get out and then like, you know, pay off the immense amount of student loan debt that my parents had accrued both while they both attained their doctorate degrees. Uh, and then we would, we would bounce, we would get out of there. And so then we stayed for 10 years. <laughs> we, you, 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 you have intentions and then sometimes they don't necessarily like work, work out right away. So, you know, this little town that I was in was, I mean, it's unclear to me in hindsight how much of what we, what we felt we had to do was strictly necessary and how much of it was just what felt necessary because we were there. But I remember like we pretended to be Methodist for a while because um, my parents were concerned that if like people in the town didn't think that we went to a church, any church, then like no one would want to go get medical services from someone who wasn't Christian. And there's also uh, pulling another example to give you a sense of what kind of town it was, but like someone was trying to convince a doctor to move to the town and their exact words were, you'll love it here. It's so culturally diverse. We have Presbyterian and Baptist churches. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in terms of places to be a like questioning queer teenager, it was not super great. And then we moved when I was 16, we moved to Wisconsin to Baraboo, Wisconsin, actually, which I consider to be my hometown, even though I we didn't move there until I was a teen, because it was the first place that really felt like home for me. And as I came more into myself and started expressing more gender nonconformity, it eventually became no longer home to me in terms of 
how people treated me when I was out and about walking and, and all of that. So for Craig, looping back to Craig Thompson's work and his experiences, um, he talks about uh, he was a little further north in Wisconsin than, than where I was. And his family life was very different because his parents were very religious, were very Christian, I should specify, very much in the conservative evangelical strain of thing. And my parents are very much the opposite. They're not Christian. They're, you know, always have been like very, very liberal and open minded and like very accepting of me. So I couldn't relate mm. to those parts of the book, that book at all. But the overall landscape of like some of the characters, like I still remember vividly, there's a, a panel in there where people in the town at his church are talking about someone who went to art school and how like he like made this sculpture of a woman's breasts and it was really sexual. And then the next logical step happened, which is that he became homosexual. <laughs> you know, like, stuff like that. I, I definitely like, definitely related to. But the the overarching experience of that kind of like isolation of not fitting into a deeply religious community that is also your family that doesn't doesn't didn't quite fit with my own. Really, with Greg Thompson's mm. work, the expressiveness of of his work and the the way he allows his imagery to he makes a lot of use of like patterns and like flowing brushstrokes in his work for some of the more emotional highlights, and that certainly influenced uh, some of my work in fine with the way I thought about uh, showing my own dysphoria and like disconnect from my body, for example. And I'm also influenced by Alison Bechtel, who's, I would say, maybe the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of very, like, this is how it is. I would describe Alison Bechtel's work as, like, expertly cut and dried in terms of the, the art style of, like, she's so masterful and intentional about what she chooses to show. And she's also very, like, very grounded in reality with it. So with those two polar opposite influences, like, I'm somewhere somewhere in the middle. Just gushing about blankets. I read it after I came out and got it from a friend who happens to be a trans cartoonist. And I think that's the first time I've related this much to a cis male character since coming right. out. And especially with like some of the moments with uh, like, yeah, the artist who became homosexual or like them having a hard time for having feminine long hair. I was like, is this is this person about to come out? Because I'm relating with a little too much of this experience. <laughs> Like yes. I, I flipped back to the front, like Craig Tom. Okay, no, I don't think they come out by the end of this, but <laughs> yeah, no wondering. Yeah, so so far as I know, Craig Thompson uh, is a cis mm. man, but boy, howdy, does does he does he still reach the feelings? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now you mentioned early in the book uh, going to an indie comic expo in 2011 and speaking with a few creators there. Was this just an experience as a fan back then, or did you already have a few indie creations of your own? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. So um, I had a few indie creations of my own. I had a few zines, and I also had a like self-published, please don't try to find it, graphic novel that I started in high school called Urban Bay, which, I mean, I, I stand by the amount of artistic growth that I went through on that project. And also, like, you know... When you're in your mid-30s, looking back on something you started when you're 16, it's like, it's, it's always a little awkward. Anyway, so I was tabling at that event. It was um, mixed the Minneapolis Indie Comics Expo. 
and uh, which ran, which is was an amazing event that ran for, I think, two or three years and then like folded. So I was friends with some folks in the Black Hat Collective up in the Twin Cities, which I believe is still open and meeting, although the pandemic might have changed that a little bit. But they, they do a lot of cool things in terms of like queer and trans comics. Shout out to, of course, to Lee Brontide and to Theo Nicole Lawrence, who I don't know if you know any of their work. They did the trans survival coloring book. I've seen that on shelves before. I'll have to revisit that. It's awesome. Uh, the trans affirmation coloring book and the trans self-care workbook are both by, by Theo. Hmm. So I knew I knew Theo. I knew um, the author, uh, Lee Brontide. And Hi Stewart uh, is another artist who I knew up there. Anyway, so, you know, for me, it was, you know, okay, we're going to take this like relatively short drive, like four or five hours up to the Twin Cities. We're going to hang out with some friends. Iron Spike is going to be there. She's really cool. And got invited to this after party at a friend's house. And then like, that's where some of these folks who I, who I just met, Kai, who I also was one of the people I interviewed for the project. And uh, they were the first person to ask me what my preferred pronoun was. And that was kind of my, um, I don't have an answer for this question. And the fact that it is a question that can be asked is opening up all sorts of other things for me. Yeah, so that was that was a really powerful, powerful moment. Okay, yeah. Kai was one of the people I had written down to ask about, like, what had made them such an impactful character in the book or a favorite of your interviewees. The fact that I met them, or sorry, uh, met M at uh, A's, uh, uses A-M airs pronouns. Uh, so I got to adjust that. It was they then when we met and people, it changes. So anyway, so yeah, so Kai, I first met M at the Mix event. And then um, A was the first person to ask me what my preferred pronouns were. And so like that kind of connection of, oh, like you've opened this door for me in terms of like, this is something and a question that I can engage with and interact with in a certain way um, was really powerful. And then through our conversations, as I was interviewing Kai for the book, like they, it just kept bringing more and more mind blowing revelations that really like resonated with me and with where I was at that time. Also, Kai is just an amazing human being. Like I, there, there are many times that I wish I had a like ability to teleport or like a portal to go wherever I wanted to at any time. Like one of, one of those reasons is that I just want to be able to like have tea with Kai more frequently in life. Um, oh, I almost forgot another person who I know who is part of the Black Hat Collective is Gerbil's work uh, behind 40 steps tables. I remember Gerbil in the book fairly often. I don't know if I know their work. Yeah, uh, Cordyceps Tick- Tickles, the volume one. It was a webcomic that ran for a while and then also is out. Got, they released it as a as a graphic novel in 2013, I think. Anyway, I would recommend that also. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of superhuman abilities to have tea across the country, uh, the superheroine you introduced really stood out to me and I I loved how we just meet them in the middle of a conversation and only get the explanation that they asked to be drawn as a superhero later and I was wondering if they were a cosplayer or something but did you get many requests of like being drawn as something fun like that that just didn't make it into the book or were they kind of one of a kind as far as getting drawn as something that special um I I had a few Superheroine, I think, is definitely the most 
fantastical. There is one person who requested, not only did they want to be totally anonymous, but they wanted to be drawn with a paper bag over their head, just like. (laughs) So, uh, and then there was one person who is a cosplayer and originally asked to be drawn in a cosplay that they were really proud of. And then when I looked back with them later, they changed their mind and wanted to go with something more grounded to reflect like what they understood about the tone of the book. So, you know, everyone kind of has their different approaches to it. There was, um, there's one conversation I had, I think it was with Durbel actually, um, who asked uh, if I could draw them as the like scribbly Durbel character that they have in their own, in their own comics. And, you know, like after we talked about it a little bit more, we like eventually landed on a more realistic portrayal because one of, one of my concerns is one, like that's, that's, that's their stuff. And also, like, can I do the scribbly gerbil justice? And, like, I wanted to make sure that, like, readers were getting the opportunity to get to know them as a human being and have that more direct connection. Because as exciting and fantastical as the superheroine, for example, like her interview is, I think that the part of what makes that interview work is that it's in the context of a lot more grounded, like, people who you could meet anywhere on the street, kind of an, an appearance. So it's kind of a reminder of like, hey, like our appearances are something that we can play with and that we can have fun with. And also all of these are like real people. So you're you're, you're hearing their stories. These are stories that they've chosen to share with you. Um, and so it keeps that vulnerability uh, in place. As far as other notable characters go, uh, Daiquiri was someone I noticed you pulled from a lot. And like, honestly, I just really loved their presentation like it was very distinct and beautiful and i just really liked all the insights they shared and their experience are they someone you've kept up with or like was there anything in particular that really made you pull from them as heavily as you did i mean i think daiquiri is just one of those phenomenal people who like you're even if you only ever wind up having a couple of conversations with them your life is just like forever improved and daiquiri is kind of one of those one of those people we had Mm. a few conversations uh in madison after we first met and then you know as time went on like folks had to move and all that we sort of like fell in and out of touch and i think they're i don't think they're in the midwest anymore we kind of lost lost contact with each other as uh i did get their their approval for their appearance in the comic and then like we haven't we haven't been in touch as much as I would like since then but you know everything that they shared with me is like their whole interview like my process for selecting what to include in the comics is I interviewed folks I transcribed each interview by hand because I didn't know that auto transcription was a thing <laughs> and and then I went through I printed it out and I went through the highlighter to highlight what I wanted to pull and most people's interviews, like I would wind up highlighting at least a third of what they what they said. And Daiquiri's was one of those where I'm just like, this, this whole thing is highlighted in different colors. Like there's so much that I want to pull from. And so many points that they touch on that are so pertinent to what is at the core of gender and how we navigate it that I really like, I just wanted to, to pull and pull and pull anyway. So yeah, you conducted over 50 interviews for the comic. And I know that you've mentioned there are a few out there that like didn't get a uh, direct representation in the book. What generally determines which ones would go unmentioned? Like I know you highlighted the distinct bits from your transcriptions, but 
Uh, was there anything that kind of worked as a disqualifier or anything that was like really hard to decide if this would make the cut? There wasn't, I didn't have anything that was like a disqualifier. Like everyone who I sat down and shared with and like, you know, I talked with trans folks. I talked with cisgender people. I talked with people who were not interested in either of those labels. Um, and, you know, there, I thought everyone had really interesting things to say. And ultimately, like, what it came down to was really like two, I would say three main factors. One, the biggest factor is just how much space do I have in this comic? There was one draft that got up to over like 450 pages. And I was like, okay, I can totally draw all of this. And my publisher was like, yeah, but we can't afford to print all those pages. And so like, cut it down, Mm. cut it down, cut it down, cut it down. And that was like, I mean, anyone who's authored anything knows the pain of like having to go through and remove things that that you love deeply and care about deeply. So, you know, that was that was certainly a process. And there were kind of some things where enough people had shared similar enough experiences that just sort of like choosing one to represent all of those kind of became the priority. There were also a few people who uh, requested to remove their their interviews from the book, either because, you know, things had changed for them. There was one person where their situation had changed such that they felt like it would be unsafe for them to be in a published book just because of some stuff that was going on for them. So I absolutely honored that. Um, there was one person who kind of at the last minute, I actually had drawn like over 12 pages for, for her. And, you know, it as I was talking with her kind of like last minute, like double checking everything, it became clear to me that she wasn't feeling like safe or comfortable with the project. And so I was like, you know, we don't, you don't have to do this. Like I'm, I can, I can, I can pull this. Like you're an amazing storyteller. I, I want, I want your story to get out there, but I wanted to get out there in a way that you feel safe and comfortable with and empowered about. So like, this is, this is purely an opt-in thing. And I wound up removing those pages, which I, again, like the, there, there's the pain for me as an author of like, oh, like that was, that was so good though. And also like for me as a human being and for what I want for my community and for the people who have given me this gift of their time and their stories, like, obviously, like it's just a book. I want, I want them to be safe. I want them to feel the love and care that they deserve. So, um, and then the third factor was more like flow or like making sure that things felt like they were in conversation with one another. So like there were a couple of, of points that that got brought up by by people that were I thought were interesting but were too tangential to the book as a whole and to like the flow of the story that I kind of was in a position of like, okay, I either need to expand this into its own full chapter or I need to like cut it. Um, and so there were some things that did get expanded, like the discussion about bathrooms and like bathroom access and there were there were other things that got cut. None of which, of course, are coming to my mind right now because we're <laughs> at the at the end of a long day. <laughs> now, I believe I saw that the last of these interviews generally took place around 2018 and 2019. I'm curious what you've observed regarding gender in a world that was in the midst of a lockdown after that and then coming out of a lockdown and just this generation of trans people myself included that kind of figured ourselves out during that time of just being stuck in with only a sense of self-reflection to keep our minds occupied yeah i mean i feel like you've already said it better than than i could possibly but like i I, you're definitely like absolutely not alone in that experience of 
you know, your gender is so contextual in how we experience it, how we like conceptualize it and in who we're talking to that like the lockdowns for so many people provided this sort of like reset of like, okay, what if the rules of the game are completely different? Then how, how would you want to, how do you, how do you want to be seen? Like how do you have this space to like really relax into it and think about like, who am I? What's going on? Also, I mean, 2020 was a really tumultuous, difficult time for a lot of reasons. Like, you know, we had the civil um, civil protests and reaction to George Floyd's murder. We had, honestly, that whole year is kind of blurred because I was also dealing with some of my own health issues on top of it. So I'm just like, well, <laughs> um, but yeah, like everything felt like it was falling apart and that everything that we thought was sort of really fixed and impermeable, like turns out it wasn't. And so I think that like, that opens up for people like, okay, how do I how can I interface with the world in a new way? And that's sort of like the positive that came from all of that upheaval and difficulty. And, you know, with regards to fine, like the closing chapter, like really focuses on the concept of gender as something that we're constantly building and taking apart and rebuilding. And I think that something like the 2020 lockdowns and all of the political upheaval that was happening at the same time as well, really highlights like how we're doing that all the time with all sorts of things um, in in our lives and as a society. And that, I don't know, it, it really makes sense to me that gender falls, falls into that. As far as aftermath stuff, I have noticed that that period of isolation, I do feel like was really radicalizing in like positive and negative ways uh, for a lot of people. And so like, coming back out into the world, like, that combined with sort of this resurgence of moral panic about LGBTQ folks and DeSantis and and all of that stuff. Like, I, I do think that like, in some ways that was fueled by people being isolated and disconnected from one another. So I don't know. I don't necessarily have a like clear and salient point on all of that, but I do think that's maybe part because I'm still processing for myself <laughs> what happened with all of that. So, yeah, but I suppose more looping back more relevant to the conversation here, you know, one of the things that I really, really hope that as many readers as possible, like take away from the book is a curiosity of like, what would happen if some of those same interviews took place today? Like, how would they be different? What if, what if it was a different person asking the questions, even if the questions themselves were the same? And I, I really like love it when I have people ask me if like, um, I'm planning on doing a sequel. Am I planning on like talking to, to these people over here? Because like, that's, that's, that's the heart of it, you know, is that this is, this is something it's, it's not a set and done thing because we're all, because we're, we're still making it and we're going to keep making it and rearranging it and finding the rules that in my vision of how gender should work include as many people and as makes it a like fun and joyful space for as many people as possible. Okay. That partially answers both of my next two questions I had uh, (laughs) regarding if like you are still having these kinds of conversations or if you are just feeling like done by the end of the project. And (laughs) 
You had mentioned using a lot of documentaries as research for the project. So I was curious if you'd considered doing something like the Up series of documentaries and like, yeah, revisiting these interviewees every few years to see how their identities and their relationship to gender have changed in the years since. Yeah, I I would love to do that. Absolutely. And the way I'm resourced now is very different from how I was resourced when I, when I started Fine. And this is, I don't know, I mean, it is what it is, right? When I first started working on Fine, I was just finishing up college. I was single. I was able to like live in my parents' basement for a very long time uh, while I kind of worked on this, this passion project. And now I'm in my mid thirties. I'm a parent. I have a spouse. Like we live in the San Francisco Bay area, which is beautiful and also very expensive and kind of what I need to do to like make things work, what resources and time and money that I have available to, to do more work in this direction. It doesn't, it doesn't quite line up at least not right now in a way that I, that I have solid plans for like wanting to do something like that. So. I don't know if there's if there's a publisher out there who would like me to do that book, let me know. <laughs> but so far, kind of the, the response that I have gotten is, uh, is to take things in a, in a different direction for now. And then maybe uh, doors always open to move back to that when I'm differently resourced. As far as actual upcoming graphic novels go, I'm been informed that there is another comic in the works that you have planned yes. for the future. Is there anything you can share about this book regarding subject matter, genre, anything like that? So for my next book, I'm planning on it's going to be fiction because as exciting as and wonderful as it was to do this really intensive interview based project with Fine, um, it was also logistically very challenging. I don't have the capacity right now to, to do that again. So fiction is kind of nice if like then if you need to change the entire structural structure of the book, you can do that without needing to like run a fresh draft by dozens of people all over again. Mm. So it's geared specifically towards young adults. And that is in part because I was talking with my with my agent about kind of like my goals around what my goals around fine were and like one of them, I mean, of course, like I'm not the only author who thinks this way of like I wanna make the book that the kid who is like the kid who I was back when I was in that small town in Kentucky, like mm. reading any, like any queer comic books I could get my hands on. Like I want to like make something for that kid. And so, you know, when she pointed out, she's like, okay, well you could just, you could, you could start working in YA. I was like, Oh, Hey, that's a, that's a direct line. So fiction YA, and it is two trans teenagers in Michigan who fall in love with a prairie fen, which is a globally rare habitat that is found in in the Midwest in uh, Wisconsin and Michigan and a couple of other places. And uh, the cool thing about prairie fens is that if you don't know what you're looking at, it just looks like a wet field. And if you do know what you're looking at, they are as biodiverse as a lot of rainforests because of the unique hydrology of them. So they're they're very cool. These two trans kids, they find a prairie fen, they fall in love with it. They also fall in love with each other and then save the day. Okay, that kind of helps with the next question, because as I've been looking into your other art, like uh, your, I think, kind of science communicator artwork and uh, your work related to the coloring books, like I've just noticed this awesome 
style like it's very trippy almost psychedelic surrounding the nature or like various uh paleo anthropology topics uh so yeah i wanted to ask if any of those topics were going to be influencing this next work but i am curious like if that same like really awesome trippy art style is gonna be used all in the next work or if it's going to stick closer to something like the art used in fine yeah so i would love to do a to to take on the challenge of a graphic novel entirely in my fine art style where it's like very very intricate all that i think that would be it would be challenging because the type of storytelling that i do in my fine arts and science communication work is like it's inherently different from like what you do with sequential art when you can have multiple panels. So there's that. But more importantly is the capacity. So I will spend between 30 and 120 hours on a single image for my, for my fine arts work doing that panel by panel for a whole graphic novel. Like Mm. I don't have time for that. Even if I had like the resources to like work on nothing else that, that would, that would be difficult. And I also think in terms of ways it connects with the reader a style more along the lines of fine will be would be more accessible to folks I'm thinking about my audience. What I'm planning for my next book is to have this more fantastical style, but only in certain pages and panels where I really want like the moments of emotion and connection to nature to really like shine through. So we were talking earlier about Craig Thompson's work. I'm also influenced by like shoujo manga and like, you know, when someone's having a feeling and there's suddenly like a field of flowers behind them. What if that, but Midwest native plants. Mm. So that's what I'm, that's, that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm, I'm thinking with that. Did that make sense? I, yeah. know, I get excited and I start talking. About it. Like I've never been the best at appreciating fine art and I've been completely unexposed to science communication artwork or at least that with that label until now. And I really like what I've learned like about the bluegill fish with four genders and like all these other really interesting obscure nature facts from that work. (laughs) Like I could see this working really well doing something like a Jonathan Hickman in his comics uses a lot of like these infographic insert pages or like, I know it's, you know, like an anime, it's the little infographs they yes. use as they cut to and come back from commercial. Like, I feel like that art style would work really well in the midst of an otherwise traditionally formatted comic. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm excited to to dig in and to play with that a little bit. Right now, I'm still draft working on the script. I'm still drafting that ad bit. So it, it is, unfortunately, it'll probably be a few years before that book is out there and in the shelves and in people's hands but I am I am working on it and I am incredibly excited about it I actually have connected with researchers at Central Michigan University for example who study prairie fens I went out in the field with them this summer to like see the habitats in person and to like also have some chats with some high school students in in the area as well and I am I'm beyond excited about it and also while it won't, it will not take as long as fine took me. It is, it is unfortunately like, I, I don't want to hype people up too much yet because I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know when, when it will be out. As far as the, the realm of your interest in paleo anthropology, uh, are there any particular topics that you really hope to explore in a comic book in the future someday mm, with maybe not an immediate plan? Hmm. 
You know, I haven't, I don't have any specific plans. Um, I think that that is something that I would really love to collaborate with an expert in the field on, because one of the things that is so fascinating to me about uh, paleoanthropology in particular is that it's such a complex field and it's so informed by who we are in the cultural context and like the, even the existential questions that we bring to that of like, you know, who are we as human beings? What does life mean? And all of that, like, so navigating that is complicated enough. Navigating that without the full minute-by-minute um, minute updates of, like, what's happening in the field is its own extra challenge. So, like, for, for working on a graphic novel about that, I would, I would love to be able to pick the brain of, like, a, of an expert and, and, and dig into that more. But, like I said, that's, that's all, like, vague directions. Now, sometimes I kind of feel like being a, an artist and an author is a little bit like being in a bubble bath. And all of the creative ideas are the bubbles. And you can't hold all the bubbles, but you can enjoy that they're there <laughs> and focus on the ones that, that, that you are that you are currently working on. Now, before we wrap up, uh, would you like to touch a little bit on uh, your work as a science communication artist and what exactly that entails for those unfamiliar with the idea? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what I do is I help scientists and researchers communicate their research to the general public and to students. And I specifically bring, I'm, you know, scientifically literate, and I also am good at project management. So, you know, I can kind of smooth some aspects of the workflow there. If you don't know any scientists, they are chronically overworked people who secretly have 20 jobs. So every primary investigator, every like researcher out there, every professor is secretly working 20 jobs. And that's why they're tired all the time. Um, (laughs) So I bring a lot of organization. And I also bring a lot of awareness of diversity and of gender diversity, of diversity when it comes to disability, and of uh, racial diversity with using my experiences that I that I gained from fine. So for example, when a recent project that I did was I helped design and illustrate a set of learning modules for undergraduate biology students, like, you know, this is something that you would encounter in like an uh, introduction to biology course, like you're 101, you're a freshman, you you get this, like, you know, you start going through this learning module about biodiversity data science. And surprise, some of the scientists that are being featured in this module are queer, are trans, are like, you know, we're going to have acknowledgments that like, you know, it's not like an, oh, hey, look, we're so diverse moment. It's like, hey, like, these are based off of real people in this field. And whether or not you see yourself in that, there's there's so much value in seeing scientists as human beings and seeing science as something that is inherently human and that connects us all. And therefore it is also like inherently diverse and also stronger, the more people and the more types of people you get. So um, that's, that's a little bit of a, I suppose, rambly way to describe what I do. I suppose the most concise description I can offer of it is just art that connects people to science and emotionally resonates. Awesome. Yeah, that's a field I'll definitely be wanting to look more into. And thank you for introducing me to it. I Otherwise, like, I don't know, I guess Bill Nye and the other science educators failed me and never introduced <laughs> me to this as a concept. <laughs> I mean, it's also a relatively new one. So a lot mm. of the, the work that I'm doing is funded on what's called a broader impact section of a grant. Uh, so broader mm. impacts are where 
a grant gives a researcher, here's a bunch of money, like run this study, figure this out. And then the broader impact section is like, okay, cool, you did the study. How are you going to connect that to the general public or to other people in some way? And that's relatively new. And it's kind of, um, relatively speaking, sort of an emerging field. And so like where the work that I'm doing as an artist in that is, I don't know, it's a, it's a little bit sort of like inventing my dream job, I suppose. Uh, that said, if anyone wants to wreck me your favorite science communication artist, please let me know. And also, um, if you haven't already, absolutely check out the nonfiction science bookshelf of any comic store because there's some absolutely delightful stuff there. I recognize this is the topic of the podcast, but like everyone used to go read science comics bats immediately because it's about bats and it's adorable and it will just make you happy in your heart. It's very timely. Just yesterday, my girlfriend was tearing up in the kitchen watching cute bat videos. And I thought she said cat, but no, she was talking about bats and how cute they are. And bat nursery is doing great things. Well, you should get her this book. Buy this book for your girlfriend. All right. I got to get this before I'm done editing it so we don't spoil the surprise. So (laughs) as far as other further reading, though, uh, just for a last final question of the week. For those of us that have read fine and are ready for some further reading or just other fun reading in the realm of queer and transroided comics, are there any books you've been reading lately that you'd really like to plug or anything you've been looking forward to lately? So I, oh my gosh, there's so much. First of all, I have to recommend Queer, A Graphic History and Gender, A Graphic Guide by Meg John Barker and Jewel Scheel. When Gender Graphic Guide first came out, I got like, I had a small crisis about it because I was like, this is the book that I originally imagined Fine would be. It it's, it takes a completely different approach. Like Meg Don Barker has the academic chops to like dig in from a completely different perspective. And it I think it's such a wonderful compliment to Fine, which is this very like, you know, studs turkle kind of like what what like what does your average Joe think kind of approach? Um, but it's it's it, it's very well done. It's a bit wordier than your typical comic. So their style is that they'll have some like spreads where it's like there's a large block of text and there's illustrations around it, and then they have some sections that are more of a traditional comic. I also, of course, have to mention Archie Von Giovanni's work, specifically Mimosa and uh, Quick and Easy Guide to They Them Pronouns. There's also Listeners, stay tuned for more from Archie that might be coming in the future. A Quick and Easy Guide to Queer and Trans Identities by Maddie G and J.R. Zuckerberg. I also really enjoyed it. It has snails. So like Mm. it's absolutely in the center of the Venn diagram for me of like it's about gender and queerness. And it's also about like nature being amazing and gender queer. And it's also a very like it's a it's a sweet little book. It's it's very unintimidating. On the sort of other end of the spectrum, I guess, is Alison Bechtel's newest book, The Secret to Superhuman Strength. I think a lot of people maybe have kind of missed. And I found it really interesting to think about from a gender perspective, specifically with regards to time and with like bodies and how we inhabit our bodies. And when it comes to time, like, you know, her descriptions of what it was like for her growing up, like as a boomer and like the way gender was put upon children then, like even compared to now, like there were multiple moments where I, I was like, Oh wow. Okay. No, it really, it really was like that. Got it. Anyway, that I don't know. I think it's, 
it's a really interesting read and kind of provides some interesting context for when the larger queer community is having conversations about like our experiences, like how they can be so dissonant. Rhea, as for you, where can my listeners find you? And do you have any work you want to plug for the immediate future? Uh, sure. Uh, so right now, uh, you can find me on Instagram. I'm Rhea.Ewing, uh, R-H-E-A dot E-W-I-N-G. And uh, I've been doing uh, sweet little throwback Thursdays. Uh, and I've also been uh, spotlighting some of my science communication work. And that is also where I'll be uh, posting about my next book as I have updates. Uh, if you kind of want to get more of me behind the scenes of my next book and see, you know, uh, drawings of prairie fans and character sketches and all of that, um, I do have a Patreon account. So you can you can check that out as well. That's at Ray Ewing. And yeah. All right. Well, thank you again, Rhea, for taking the time to come on the show. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this next graphic novel. <laughs> All right, good. My my goal is to get as many people hyped, so I feel I feel the social pressure to finish it. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much for having me, and it's it's been a delight. My pleasure. If the listeners at home have requests or recommendations for comics or creators you'd like to hear us cover in the future, you can send them our way on social media. You can find us on the Transcending Comics Instagram and Facebook page, on Twitter as at Transcend Comics, or email us at transcendingcomics at gmail.com. I'd like to thank you for giving our podcast a chance and give a special shout out to Ray Day Parade for designing our logo. Our intro and outro music this week is A Little Soul and You've Been Starring by Carlson. Check out their new single on Spotify, iTunes, and most other music platforms. Join us again next week as we continue transcending boundaries and exploring the colorful world of trans, non-binary, and genderqueer representation in comic books of all kinds. As the curtains fall on this episode of Transcending Comics, remember the comics have the power to inspire change in countless worlds, including our own. Keep reading, keep writing, and keep transcending.